All right, we are back after a what I hope was a very relaxing and fun and encouraging time of Thanksgiving with your loved ones. I know that Belle and I had a blast being back home in Dallas with our relatives, and um, it's really just a sweet time of fellowship and good food, football, all the things that we love about Thanksgiving, but I'm very thankful to be back with you guys as well. I missed you all, and though we're from Dallas, this is very much our home, and, and you guys are very much our family, so we are really eager to continue where we left off before the break, and as it pertains to our Sunday school this morning, we are on Roman numeral five. Roman numeral five of lesson two. This Roman numeral is titled the First Church Council. And in parentheses, there's a reference to Acts 15. We're going to look at that in just a few moments. But before we get too far this morning, um, I do need a volunteer to read 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 17 through 18. 2 Peter 3, verses 17 through 18. Emma, thank you for volunteering. I'm going to pray before she reads that. So Emma, as you flip there... I'm going to open us up in a word of prayer, and we will jump right on into this morning's study. Let's pray together. Father, we are grateful to be back this morning to gather with your people for corporate worship on this Lord's Day at FBC Edna. And Father, as great as it was to celebrate Thanksgiving, we recognize that Thanksgiving is so much more than just a holiday. It is a posture. It is an attitude. It is a walk of life for your people, and by your Spirit, You've enabled us to be able to give thanks in good times and bad times. And Lord, we pray that we would be a people that is overflowing with thankfulness, no matter what circumstances you may lead us into. Father, we pray that as we begin today's study, that you would remove any distractions from us, that you'd give us focus by your spirit to accurately divide your word, accurately apply its truths to our lives, to accurately reflect upon its significance within the context of church history. Father, we pray we'd be changed by these truths, that we would not just grow in a knowledge that stays in our minds, but, Lord, that that head knowledge would ultimately be, that it would ultimately become heart knowledge, that it would produce life transformation so that we may be more like our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, we pray for the ministries in our church as we head into the final month of 2021. Father, we pray you would move in power at FBC Edna, Lord, that you would allow every ministry in our church to be rooted and grounded on the authority of your word, to be shaped by its truths, and Lord, to be a powerful witness, your salt and light in our church and in our community, so that you might be supremely magnified in our midst. And God, as we as we now dive into this lesson, we just ask that you would be in our midst and help us to be who you've called us to be. Help us to get out of this lesson exactly what you would want us to get out of it. We love you, God, and we give you thanks. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. All right. Emma, whenever you're ready. Uh, 2 Peter 3, verses 17 and 18. So right at the end of 2 Peter. Fall from your own steadfastness and not away with the air 
Very good. Well, thank you very much for reading that, Emma. Um, and guys, remember, while we are reading scriptures, make sure you've got your Bibles flipped to the passages so we can talk about the passage effectively. We can examine the truths that are contained in those texts. Uh, the, the reason why I had us read this text to begin our time of study this morning is because these concluding verses in Second Peter provide us with insight into the value of studying church history. Um, it enables us also to be reminded that we need to be on guard against any errors that might creep into the church from unprincipled men, from men who are intentionally divisive, from, from men who want to spread dissension and discord within the people of God. And part of the value of studying church history is it provides us with historical examples of how God's people in their study of Scripture and in their application of Scripture, they were able to protect the church from those who would come in to do the church harm. And that's, again, uh, really a, a central theme of what took place during the first church council as found in Acts 15, and as it has direct application to the book of Galatians. We're going to talk about that a little bit today, but again, the value of what we're doing here in Sunday school the purpose for why we're doing forerunners of the faith is so that we not only grow in our knowledge of Scripture, we certainly need to know Scripture more than we need to know church history, right? Scriptures are ultimate authority. It's God's special revelation to man. It's the most important thing we can commit ourselves to learning and to obeying. But with that said, it's likewise true that there is great value in understanding church history because what church history does, as I said before, it helps us to see how faithful men and women took the truths of Scripture, applied them within their historical context for the glory of God, the good of His church, and for the safeguarding and protection of the truth of Scripture itself. And by God's grace, may we be such a people who models that in our 21st century efforts. So I'm going to pick up right where we left off here in our curriculum. Dr. Buznitz, under Roman numeral 5, notes the following. He says, The second half of Acts 11 records the beginning of a Jew and Gentile church in Antioch of Syria. Because of the conversion of Cornelius, which we learned about back in Acts 11, the leaders of the Jerusalem church were eager to send help when they heard about the believers in Antioch. To meet the pastoral need in Antioch, the Jerusalem church sent Barnabas. We read that last time in Acts 11.22. And the ministry went so well in Antioch that Barnabas invited Saul to come help him. Now, just to make sure you guys remember, who is Saul? Do you all remember who Saul is? Yeah, persecuted Christians. Uh, he was a Pharisee, and uh, Jesus appeared to him in a, in a supernatural way on the Damascus Road, as we saw back in Acts 9. And as a result of that, he became the apostle to the Gentiles. Obviously, he ministered to Jews as well, but that designation, apostle to the Gentiles, that was his primary focus in his missionary endeavors, which we're going to talk about in a few moments. Um, the vast majority of our New Testament comes from the pen of the Apostle uh, Paul. And Saul, remember, Saul is just the Hebrew name for the Greek Paul, right? We call Paul Paul because that's how he's known during his ministry to the Gentiles. But his Hebrew given name is Saul. So that's, 
just making sure we're all on the same page of, of that little vignette as we work our way through the curriculum. So we have Barnabas inviting Saul to come help him. That's right at the tail end of Acts 11. And Buznitz continues. He says, after strengthening that church and after a trip to Jerusalem to minister to believers there, Saul and Barnabas were sent out by the Holy Spirit to go to the other cities within the Roman Empire to preach the gospel and establish churches. Now, uh, just to ensure that we're somewhat aware of the narrative that's going on here, I need a volunteer to read Acts 13, verses 1 through 3. This is going to get us up to speed with where we're at at this section in Forerunners of the Faith. This is the historical narrative that is taking place here. Acts 13, verses 1 through 3. Ellie, go ahead and take that away. Okay, uh, Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, and Menaean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch and Saul. So go ahead and pick up in verse 2. Very good. Thank you for that, Ellie. So we are, again... At this point in the narrative, we have the outset of what is known as Paul's first missionary journey to the Gentiles. Now, um, as you'll see there in front of you by now, you should all have a map. And on that map, we see each of Paul's Three missionary journeys recorded throughout the book of Acts, and of course, as alluded to in several of Paul's letters in the New Testament, we see all of those missionary journeys detailed. You have the first journey outlined, I think it's in either blue or purple, depending on your uh, designation of that particular color. You have his second missionary journey in orange, his third missionary journey in maroon, or it could even be pink or purple, depending on your designation of that color. And then, of course, you have his voyage to Rome when Paul was in prison and going to trial. Now, Acts 13 and 14 is particularly focused on Paul's first missionary journey that he takes to the churches in southern Galatia. It's in Acts 13.9 that we see a shift take place in the book of Acts. Luke, the writer of Acts, begins to refer to Saul by his Greek name, which we talked about earlier, is Paul. And that change, as I noted earlier, and, and as echoed here in our curriculum by Dr. Buznitz, that change is likely due to the fact that Paul's missionary journey at this point is focused primarily on the Gentiles who would have spoken Greek. Jews primarily spoke um, Aramaic or Hebrew in some quarters. But the Gentiles spoke Greek throughout the Roman Empire. Now, notice that map. I want us to make some observations from this map. 
I want us to see if we can identify where each New Testament letter was distributed. I thought this would be a fun activity for us to do. How many of you guys have ever seen this map before? A few of you maybe. Like it's, it's typically in the back of a study Bible. Um, but I, I figured that for the most part, most of y'all here had, had never even seen this map. It was probably a foreign uh, concept for you. You saw it and you're like, what in the world? Is this world geography? I thought we were here for Sunday school. Um, well, spoiler, we're going to do a little bit of geography this morning. Um, what do you see here, though? Let's make some observations on this map before we move any further here in our section in Forerunners of the Faith. What stands out to you? And you guys can just popcorn, spitball. Say it out loud. Do you see any sections on the map that you can think of off the top of your head where a letter that Paul wrote would have been... Um, either delivered to or written in. So either he wrote the letter in that part of the world or he sent a letter to that part of the world. Galatia, Galatia right? Galatians. Yeah. Corinth, right? First and second Corinthians. What else? How about all those black dots that have a red circle around them right there in Asia? Yeah, you see Sardis and Thyatira, Pergamum, Smyrna, Ephesus, which we know, what does Ephesus remind you of? Ephesians, Ephesians right? Philadelphia. Philadelphia, Laodicea. So what are those? Do y'all, do y'all recall what those uh, city names are in reference to? The seven churches, right? Book of Revelation. Very good. And... Um, we know, of course, that Timothy was a pastor in Ephesus, which means that First and Second Timothy would have been delivered in that region, right? They were written to Timothy. They would have been delivered in that region. Crete, you see that little island down there? Crete, that's where Titus was ministering to. So the book of Titus would have been there. Now, you're not going to find this one because I had to Google it. It's a little speck on your map right there to the west of Samos, you see where it says the Aegean Sea, or the Aegean Sea, depending on how you pronounce it. Uh, we see a little designation, the Kyclades Islands right there. Right above it on one of those little specks is the island of Patmos, and that's where the Apostle John was exiled. And depending on certain commentators and New Testament historians, uh, all agree that he wrote the book of Revelation there. Some argue that he likely may have written uh, the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John there as well. Some, though, uh, tradition uh, would give us indication to think that uh, there may have been likelihood that after Jesus' crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension, John would have taken Jesus' mother Mary, and they would have gone up into northern Asia, and it would have been there that John would have written the Gospel of John 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. So there's some debate on that, but um, the island of Patmos right there in the either the Aegean or the Aegean Sea, a little speck there. Um, what else do we find here? What other, what other um, letters in the New Testament would have been written 
I'll just give you a spoiler. They were all written in this <laughs> in this part of the world. But uh, what what can y'all find that sticks out to you? Think about just think about books of the Bible. Thessalonians. Thessalonians yeah, where do you think where do you think of that one would be at, uh, Lily? Yeah, right. You see Thessalonica right there in Macedonia. So absolutely, first, second Thessalonians would have been um, delivered there. Philippi, yep, Philippians, that's right there in Macedonia as well. Uh, now, Rome is way up here on the top left-hand corner of the map in Italy. Um, of course, the book of Romans would have been delivered there. And Paul, as he says in the book of Romans, he ultimately wanted to go all the way west to Spain. Um, we don't actually know if he ever made it that far, but he did want to go and minister there. And um, that was expressed in his um, letter to the Romans Think about how long it would have taken to travel, and largely by sea, right? Like if he would have wanted to go all the way to Spain, and you see Antioch right there in Syria, right there on the right side of your map, top part of Syria, that became really the central base for the first century church. So for Paul to have wanted to go to Spain, he would have had to get on a boat, travel all the way through the Mediterranean Sea, past the Tyrrhenian Sea on the west bank of Rome all the way to Spain. Now, again, we don't know if he ever made it that far or not, but um, that would have been a long, long travel for sure. Let's see, other letters here, of course. Um, the, where, where do you think James was written at? We said Corinth already, Mike, but I appreciate the uh, volunteering there. Where do you think, you know, we've been studying James now for a year and a half. Where do you think, um, where do you think that would have been written? Just think about who he was writing to. Who was James writing to? Does anybody remember? Who was his original audience? No, um... It's okay. It's okay. Think about it. Okay, James is the half brother of Jesus. So who? So who would he have? What was his ethnic group? Jewish, right? So who would James have been writing that letter to? First century Jewish Christians who were scattered due to the persecution from King Herod Agrippa. Now look on the map. Where do you find Jerusalem? That the headquarters, as it were, for. Right, right, between Syria and Egypt, right there along the Jordan River, right there on the border, um, the headquarters for ethnic Jews during the first century. So it's likely that the book of Hebrews was, writ was written and delivered to Jewish Christians around there. And again, Hebrews, you're looking at mid to late 60s A.D., so some 20-plus years after James was written, after the persecution would have ended, uh, Jewish Christians would have likely migrated back to their homeland there, around Jerusalem. So the book of Hebrews was uh, likely written uh, and delivered to Christians in that region. And James would have been all along, uh, you see right there in the bottom right-hand corner, Nabate. They probably would have been way out in the outskirts, fleeing, right? They're dispersed. So James would have been delivered somewhere way out there off our map going towards the uh, southeast direction. Um, first and second Peter, uh, you probably wouldn't 
remember this off the top of your head, so I'll let you know. Right there, top right-hand corner of the map, you see Cappadocia, Cilicia, right in that region. That's who Peter's writing to. First and second Peter. A few others we haven't named explicitly, uh, Colossians and Philemon, right there. Just just a click southwest of Laodicea, just right there in that area. And I'm not sure if there are any others that we haven't mentioned explicitly. Looking on my map to make sure I didn't forget any. All right, yeah, I think we I think we hit all twenty. Well, we hit all the letters. Um, well, we hit one of the gospels, Luke. Mark and Matthew, there's no telling where those may have been written. Um, you got to remember, the, the, the thing that makes the Gospels a little bit trickier to pin down is they were primarily circulatory letters, meaning that they were written various parts depending on where the author was living at the time. So in the case of Luke, he was a traveling companion of Paul. He was never really in one location for that long. He might be there for a few years, but he was traveling a lot, right? Um, Matthew and Mark. Mark was a traveling companion of Peter. Peter's traveling, of course, as we know from the book of Acts. Mark is accompanying him. Again, probably not in the same location for any longer than a few years at a time. Um, Matthew, we really don't know a whole lot about what he was doing during the book of Acts. He's not mentioned a whole lot. He might. I can't even tell you how many times he was mentioned, but if he is, it's, it's less than a handful. So, and of course we have church tradition that say all sorts of wild things about what the authors were doing, but definitively we know that these letters are a lot easier to pin down because they had a set destination where they were going. And it is true that these letters would be passed along to other churches during the first century, but it makes it a lot easier to pin down where they were written and and of course, by who they were written, by virtue of um, the author associated with the letter. We have the book of Acts that literally tracks Paul and Peter's work during the first century. And we have the destination of where that letter was going to. The Gospels, they were basically written to a broad audience, right? It's evangelistic. So although there's a more Jewish flavor to the Gospel of Matthew, there's a more Gentile flavor to the Gospel of, say, John, those Gospels were still being read by both parties, Jews and Gentiles, and they were being widely dispersed as they were written. They would be written, and they would be copied, and then those copies would be sent off, and those copies would be sent off as well. And there was a wide emphasis on an um, evangelistic uh, focus with those letters, and it makes it a little bit harder to track down as a result. So um, that's why we really focus on those letters today. But I think the Gospel of John, I hold to an early date of the, of the writing of John's letters, so I think that it's, it's likely that uh, the Gospel of John and 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John were written in, in uh, Asia, and that um, the book of Revelation was written on the island of Patmos. But uh, Luke could have written his Gospel, and of course the book of Acts as they were traveling same would go for Mark and Matthew. We just we know very little about where he's at and where he's traveling to during this period of first century history. So with that in mind, does anyone have any questions about this map? I know that was kind of geography related, but 
it's just good to see it. It's good to see on paper right in front of you what our brothers and sisters in Christ were up to some 2,000 years ago. You see Paul's travels. You see where these books of the Bible were delivered to or written at. It's just good to see it visualized. Any questions before we move on? All right, great. Well, you've got a resource now to keep with you. Buznitz, he notes that in Acts 13, 38 and 39, after a lengthy gospel presentation, Paul told an audience in a synagogue, Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through this man, Jesus Christ, is preached to you the forgiveness of sins. And by him, everyone who believes is justified from all things from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. Now, the sermon's too good not to read the whole thing. Scripture's too good not to read at all, right? We've got to, we, should, we should always be eager to read the Word of God. Um, but this particular sermon, this proclamation that Paul makes here in Acts 13, I think we need to give attention to uh, before we open up the floor for some discussion. I need some volunteers. We're going to read from Acts 13, verse 16 to Acts 13, 52. So if I can get a volunteer to read verses 16 to 20, I need a lot of volunteers. Acts 13, 16 through 20. Who would be willing to read those verses? Anybody? Wit, thank you. Um, Ellie, would you read verses 21 through 25. Uh, I need someone to read verses 26 to 31. Verses 26 to 31. Lily, thank you. Verses 32 through 37. Verses 32 to 37. I'll help you out with some of them. Just need a few more volunteers. Thanks, Joanna. Verses 38 to 42, Mac. Verses 43 to 47. Michael, you want to take those? Verses 43 to 47 of Acts 13. And I'll take verses 48 to 52. And um, Wit, whenever you're ready at verse 16, take it away, my friend.
Uh, 26 to 31. Uh, Acts 13. And the word of the Lord was being spread through the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of prominence and the leading men of the city and instigated a persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust of their feet in protest against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were continually filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. 
So verse 46, really, that, that's, the, that's the shift in the book of Acts. Notice what Paul and Barnabas said. It was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first, but since you repudiate it and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, we are turning to the Gentiles. And from this point onward, the focus of Acts is on Gentile gospel outreach. This is a declaration of God's judgment on unbelieving Israel at this point. And remember, Jesus came first to the Jew, right? He said in Matthew chapter 10, verses 5 and 6, when he commissions the 12 to go out and share the gospel, he says, Do not go in the way of the Gentiles. Do not enter any city of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And then again in Matthew 15, In verse 24, he comes into contact with a Canaanite woman who is demon or her, her daughter is demon-possessed. And Jesus says, I was sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. It's not to say Jesus wasn't ministering to Gentiles or didn't care about Gentiles, but the primary focal point of his earthly ministry was to bear witness to Israel that their promised Messiah had come. The, the Messiah that had been prophesied and expected for generations past had come. And, of course, we know that some Jews came to faith, but the vast majority of Jews rejected Christ. And to this day, the vast majority of Jews continue to reject their Messiah. The vast majority of the people of God for the past 2,000 years has been Gentiles. And in the, in the mysterious wisdom and providence of God, it's remarkable to think how we who were once strangers and foreigners and those who are far off from the promises of God and from the truth of God, we Gentiles are those who now know Him as Father in Heaven. Um, it, is, it is remarkable to think about that reality. But... Notice here, you have, I think, three blanks right there in a little paragraph. It says Acts, and I, I actually marked it out, and uh, I wrote this. Acts 13, 38, and 39 summarize the heart of Paul's gospel invitation, namely that through faith in Christ, sinners can be forgiven from their debt of sin and justified, declared righteous by God. That first blank there is forgiven. Through faith in Christ, sinners can be forgiven from their debt of sin and justified, declared righteous by God. That's the second blank, justified. Faith in Christ accomplishes what adherence to the law of Moses cannot provide. Salvation is by faith alone apart from the law. That's the third blank in that little paragraph there. Faith alone. So blank number one is forgiven. Blank number two is justified. Blank number three is faith alone. Now, question for group discussion. As we discussed a few weeks back during our question and answer session, what two words did we say could summarize the heart of the gospel? Does anybody remember that? 
I spent, I think, probably 15 minutes emphasizing it and explaining it. Um, but does anyone remember from the Q&A session? Man, you got, you got the important word. Very good, Emma. Imputation. Now, the first word was double, but man, very good, Emma. I'm pumped right now. Um, that's the gospel, folks. Double imputation. That is the heart and soul of the gospel. Write that down. Commit to memory. Double imputation. The heart of the gospel. Now, um, follow-up question to that. How does double imputation describe what takes place when a sinner comes to saving faith in Jesus Christ? In other words, how does double imputation convey the beauty of the gospel, the, the substance of the gospel? Think about it. So what, let's, let's break down the word. Double means, right, two, right? Two-sided. Imputation. Does anyone remember what that word is? What it means? It means to credit or to account. To credit or to account. Um, now, think about this. What is happening when a sinner gets saved, when a sinner believes what has what's got to take place in that moment? What do you think impute where do you think imputation fits into that? Right? Giving credit to God. That 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 is true. Um, but I'm thinking more specifically. Okay, let me let me give you another hint. Think about Jesus at the cross, okay? And think about me coming to faith in him. What is taking place there? And think about a text like 2 Corinthians 5:21. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. What's going on there? Okay, so yeah, our sin being taken away. Where does our sin go, Michael? Uh, To Jesus. To Jesus, right? So through faith, our sin, our unrighteousness is imputed. It's It's accounted to. It's credited to Christ. So when I believe, it's as if my whole life of sin was transferred over to Jesus at the cross. And at the cross, Jesus bears the full punishment for that sin. He bears an eternity's worth of divine wrath for my unrighteousness at the cross. There's the first side of imputation. Now what else do you think happens there? Am I just wiped clean? Is it, is it enough to say that, that, that my sins are forgiven and I'm without sin? Does that mean I get to go to heaven? No, right? Because what does God require of sinful man? Or of man in general, not just sinful man. What does He require of those He's made in His image? Perfection, right? You shall be holy as I the Lord am holy. Leviticus 11, 1 Peter 1, 15 and 16. So, what do you think happens at the cross through faith? What, where, does, where, where, where does Christ come into play here, other than, of course, bearing the wrath of God on our behalf. That's kind of a big deal. But what's happening also there? What's the other side of the coin? How am I made righteous? Because I'm not. You're not. But how can God regard us as righteous and remain just? Think about it. Jesus was without sin. He lived a perfect life. He was perfectly righteous in every respect. So where do you think that righteousness has got to go for us to be made right with God? 
It's got to come to us, right? There's the other side of imputation. My unrighteousness to Christ, His perfect righteousness to me through the channel, through the instrument of faith. Faith is the means through which my unrighteousness goes to Christ and is punished at the cross through His sacrifice. God's justice is satisfied. And Christ's perfect righteousness is given to me, the believing sinner, as a free gift of grace. It's not earned or deserved. I'm getting what I don't deserve in getting the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Theologians call this double imputation. Another term you can use, the great exchange. His robes for mine, my robes of unrighteousness to Christ. His spotless, perfect robes to me. When God looks at me, it's as if I lived Christ's perfect life without sin because all He sees are the spotless, righteous robes of Jesus Christ. And when He looks to Christ at the cross, it's as if He had lived my life of sin. Because when God is pouring out His wrath on Jesus, He is pouring it out in the place of every person who would ever believe. Jesus is satisfying divine justice for those who have sinned against God and yet come to faith. That's how God can be, the, can be both just and the justifier of sinners. He's just because He punishes the sin of sinners. And yet He's the justifier because He's able to declare them righteous on the basis of Christ's perfect life, death, and resurrection. And again, all of that is transferred to us through the channel or the instrument of faith. If I could put it another way, maybe this will help drive it home. Every sin in human history will be punished. It's either going to be punished by the sinner in hell forever and ever, or it was punished at the cross in the death of Christ. Your sin will be punished. Justice will be satisfied. It's either going to be satisfied through Christ's death, or it's going to be satisfied by you bearing eternal wrath in hell. One way or another, though, God is a perfect judge. He's perfectly righteous. He's perfectly holy. He will have justice. But He's also gracious and merciful and loving. And that is what makes the gospel so sweet. He gives us what we don't deserve by withholding what we do deserve if we come to faith in Christ. Double imputation. The great exchange that is the heart and soul of the gospel. Does anyone have any questions there? I don't mind stopping there and clarifying because, guys, if you're going to get anything right in Christianity, this is what you've got to get right. This is bedrock Christianity. This is the gospel. I'm willing to camp here if there's any questions or if anyone needs any clarification. If not, we can move on. But some good texts. Second Peter, or excuse me, 1 Peter 3.18, 2 Corinthians 5. 21 very vivid texts that describe double imputation, describe this idea of the great exchange. 1 Peter 3.18 and 2 Corinthians 5.21. Very, very good text for that. Well, moving on now. When Paul and Barnabas returned to Antioch after completing their missionary journey, some false teachers arrived insisting that sinners must be circumcised and obey the law of Moses to be saved. This resulted in a conflict about the essence of the gospel. Are sinners saved by faith in Jesus Christ alone, as Paul had been preaching? Or do they also need to follow the law of Moses? Let me give you the context of this. 
I need a volunteer to read Acts 15, verses 1 through 6. Anyone want to take that text? I'll read the second text. Emma, yeah, thank you very much for volunteering. Acts 15, 1 through 6. I'll read Galatians 2, verses 1 through 10. This is going to set the stage for this controversy. It's been well said. Um, and it was kind of as a joke, but uh, I've heard it said um, this way. When we get to heaven, we're not going to know what to do with ourselves because there won't be any more controversies for theologians to deal with. It just seems like every time you look up in church history, there's some sort of controversy going on here. Um, In any case, I don't know if you all found that as amusing as I did. But uh, (laughs) um, this this is the stage. Paul and Barnabas traveled to Jerusalem to meet with the apostles and church elders there. Um, Apparently, Paul had met with some of the leaders privately, but... Ultimately, it comes to a head. There is a public church council that takes place in Acts 15. That really gets back to the, the central heading of this section, Romans numerals 5, the first church council. This is a church-wide summons trying to deal with the heart and soul of Christianity, namely the gospel. What must a sinner do to be saved? Does a sinner need to only believe in Christ? Or do they need to believe in Christ and obey the law of Moses? Emma, let's find out. You read Acts 15, verses 1 through 6, and I'll take the passage in Galatians. And certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren, unless you, are, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Therefore, when Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and dissaved, dissension and dispute with them. They they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenicia Phoenicia and Samaria, describing the conversations of the Gentiles, and they caused great joy to all of the brethren. And when they had come to Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders. <clears throat> and they reported all things that God had done with them. But some of the sect of the Pharisees who believed rose up saying, it is necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. Now the apostles and elders came together to consider this matter. All right, let me pause right there before I read the Galatians 2 text. This is a very important principle. Verse 5 is key for this point I want to make to you guys this morning. It is possible for true Christians to make significant theological error. But here's the mark of a true Christian. The mark of a true Christian is recognizing that when you are in error, you don't double down in your error out of pride, but you repent and you come to a knowledge of the truth. Verse 5, Look, notice this. This is really the crux of what's going on here. Some of the Pharisees who had believed, people who were once Pharisees like Paul, they come to faith and they say, well, wait a second. Well, we we recognize Jesus as Lord and Savior, but it's also necessary to have new believers circumcised. And of course, we can't throw out the law of Moses. We've got to obey the law of Moses, right? It's important. Jesus said that, He didn't come to abolish the law. He came to fulfill the law. Of course it's important, right? 
So guys, we're, we're dealing with a genuine dispute of doctrine amongst true Christians. Okay? Now, of course, as we're going to find out here later as we read the rest of this narrative, these teachers who were in error, they repented. They repented. They, they came around eventually. But that's how you tell the mark of a true Christian, a mark of a true teacher, and the mark of a false teacher, the mark of an unbeliever. True Christians, when they are confronted with their errors, they eventually, when they are convinced by the Word of God, they will repent. And we're not talking about something like eschatology here. We're talking about the gospel. This isn't some esoteric doctrine that we're talking about. We're talking about the heart and soul of biblical Christianity. If a true Christian finds themselves to be in error in accordance with the Word of God on a doctrine that gets to the heart and soul of the Christian faith, they will always, by the work of the Holy Spirit, repent. might take some time, but they will come to repentance. False teachers and unbelievers will double down out of pride because it's not ultimately about being right. It's about just winning a debate or it's about having it go their way. It's an important observation we need to make from this narrative. But with that in mind, let me read Galatians 2, verses 1 through 10. Paul's perspective. He says, After an interval of 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along also. It was because of a a revelation that I went up, and I submitted to them the gospel which I preach among the Gentiles. But I did so in private to those who were of reputation, for fear that I might be running or had it run in vain. But not even Titus, who was with me, though he was a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. But it was because of the false brethren secretly brought in who had sneaked in to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ, in order to bring us into bondage. So apparently false teachers sweep in and they convince some believing leaders in the church to buy into their error. Okay? Paul says, though, we did not yield in subjection to them for even an hour, referring to him and Titus and Barnabas. He said, we did not yield in subjection to them for even an hour so that the truth of the gospel would remain with you. But from those who were of high reputation, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Well, those who were of reputation contributed nothing to me. But on the contrary, seeing that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been to the circumcised. For he who effectually worked for Peter and his apostleship to the circumcised, effectually worked for me also to the Gentiles. And recognizing the grace that had been given to me, James and Cephas and John, who were reputed to the pillars, gave to me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship, so that we might go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised." They only asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I also was eager to do. So what's, what's, what's going on here in Acts 15? You have Jewish Christians, those who used to be Pharisees, those who used to be strict adherents to the Mosaic Law. These figures were deceived by, as Paul describes in Galatians 2, they were deceived by false uh, converts, And as a result, they start espousing this error, right? They start insinuating that, yeah, you've got to believe in Jesus, but you've also got to add circumcision. You've also got to add dimensions of the law of Moses. So you've got genuine believers who fall victim 
to the falsehoods of false teachers, the falsehoods of unbelievers. And now here's the ultimate conclusion. What wound up happening back in Acts 15? How does the issue get resolved? Well, as we find in our workbooks, as you'll see in front of you, at the Jerusalem Council, which took place around A.D. 49 or 50, Peter defended the true gospel with these words. And here it is. I'm going to read that. It's right there in your workbook. You follow along with me as I read. Peter proclaims this. Brethren, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, testified to them, giving them the Holy Spirit, just as He also did to us, And he made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why do you put God to the test by placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way as they also are. What's Peter saying here? He's saying that sinners are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, because their hearts are cleansed by faith. As Buznitz commentates here in my teacher's guide, in this very way, Peter affirms the truth of the gospel that Paul had proclaimed throughout his missionary journey, as we just discussed in the narrative contained in Acts 13. For the sake of you taking notes and for the sake of your clarification, how is salvation explained? Let me give that to you. Salvation is explained in this way. God's grace equals the source of salvation. God's grace equals the source of salvation. That's sola gratia, grace alone. God's grace equals the source of salvation. Jesus Christ equals the basis of of salvation. That's solus Christus, Christ alone. Jesus Christ is the basis of salvation. God's grace is the source of salvation. Faith equals the means of salvation or the channel of salvation. It's the way in which salvation comes to me. My unrighteousness to Christ is righteousness to me and all the benefits that pertain to that righteousness. So we've got God's grace equals the source of salvation, sola gratia. Jesus Christ equals the basis of salvation, solus Christus. Faith equals the means of salvation or the channel of salvation or the instrument of salvation. That's sola fide. Scripture equals the explanation of salvation. Sola scriptura. The theme of our conference coming up in a few weeks. Our encounter event. Scripture explains salvation to us. It testifies to salvation. And God's glory equals the purpose of salvation. Why were you saved? It wasn't primarily for your own benefit. It wasn't primarily because of anything other than God magnifying His glorious character, His unrivaled attributes of deity. And bringing you to saving faith. 
That salvation explained. God's grace equals the source of salvation, sola gratia. Jesus Christ equals the basis of salvation, solus Christus. Faith equals the means of salvation, sola fide, or you could even say the channel or the instrument of salvation. Scripture equals the explanation of salvation, sola scriptura, scripture alone. And God's glory equals the purpose of salvation, soli deo gloria. That is salvation explained. And as we draw our time together to a conclusion, Buznitz, and I think you'll have one more blank to fill in in this section. Buznitz writes, he says, Under the leadership of James, the brother of Jesus, the council affirmed the ministry of Paul and Barnabas. Gentile believers were not required to follow the law of Moses, though they were instructed to avoid immorality and to be sensitive to the consciences of fellow believers who were from a Jewish background. Later, Paul learned that the churches he and Barnabas had planted on their first missionary journey were also subject to the same false teachers, and that, of course, is what Paul addressed in Galatians. Paul responded by writing that letter, the book of Galatians, to express his concern and to reiterate this conclusion that was made at the Council of Jerusalem in the year 49 or 50 A.D. Well, my friends, that is where we are going to conclude today. You'll notice there right at the bottom of Roman numeral 5, the First Church Council, Acts 15, there's a four discussion box. We are going to cover that to help us bridge the gap between this section and Roman numeral 6 during our next Sunday school lesson. So next Sunday, we're going to begin by addressing that question. I guess it's a multi-part question. We're going to address that multi-part question in the box at the bottom of the section Roman numeral 5, the First Church Council, and in doing so, we'll transition nicely into our consideration of Roman numeral 6. Does anybody have any questions about anything we've discussed today before we prepare to wrap up our time with a word of prayer and head over for corporate worship? Just really quickly by way of review, what, what two words describes the heart of the Christian faith, the heart of the gospel? Double imputation. And uh, I'll probably ask you that just uh, to see if you guys remember that uh, come next Sunday. So be ready for a little pop quiz. Let's pray, and then we will prepare for our time of corporate worship. God, what a privilege it's been to reflect on the wonderful work you accomplished back some 2,000 years ago, as declared from Acts 13 through Acts 15. Lord, it's been a treasure for us to work our way through the Holy Spirit-inspired testimony of the first century church. We know church history matters, Father, because it mattered enough for you to inspire an entire book of the Bible about it. And Lord, we ask that we would be those who not only grow in our knowledge of Scripture, who not only grow in our ability to effectively share our faith with others and to understand the intricacies and nuances of theology, but Lord, that we would be those who know history so we can be prepared to not follow the errors that 
others have committed in generations past. Father, help us to be Bereans, to always take what we hear and to bring it in comparison with Scripture to ensure that what we hear is actually true. Lord, I pray that every person in this room would continue to grow abundantly in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, that they would see you as their greatest source of delight and satisfaction in this world. Lord, if there's anyone here this morning or listening to the recording of this message who does not know you, who, who has not come to saving faith in Jesus Christ, Father, I pray you would draw them to yourself, Lord. Help them to see their utter helplessness apart from you cleansing them from their unrighteousness and crediting them with the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ all exchanged through the means of faith, that great exchange, that glorious truth of double imputation that we've talked about today. And now, Father, as we prepare to go and worship you corporately with the brethren here at FBC Edna, we pray that our time of corporate worship would be pleasing in your sight, Lord, that the songs that we sing with our lips and that uh, the prayers that we pray in our hearts and as we sit under the preaching of your word from brother Robert Lord that we would be active participants in this time of worship that we would not merely be passive that we would not merely go through the motions Lord but that this time of worship would be a a fragrant aroma a pleasing spiritual sacrifice in your sight and that we would be forever changed from this time of gathering with your people here at our at our local church And Lord, as we prepare for a new week, equip us, Father, to be good stewards of what you've entrusted to us with our responsibilities and our relationships. Keep us safe as we depart from this place. And Lord, may we bring you ultimate honor. May we magnify you this week. May we be who you've called us to be in Christ. We love you, God. We thank you for loving us first. And we pray all of this in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.